0: What, you thought I was going to keep doing this till they had to wheel me out in a chair, dab the drool off my face, and hand me a microphone? No. We're not doing that. We are very really excited about Christopher and Brittany Glatzbach. I would introduce them to you this morning, except they're next door at the 456 doing ministry over there. By the way, Christopher will stay in his uh, leadership role with 180 and young adults through this school year. Or so all of your parents and students... Uh, stay calm about that, and uh, we'll be working on his replacement as well. So, good things ahead. Indeed, the best is yet to come. Well, I- I'm really excited about this series we're beginning today. We're calling it "This." I believe I couldn't imagine a topic more pertinent to the questions being asked in our culture today, to the to the uncertainty, the confusion, the the seeking that is happening. Across uh, our culture in so many ways, so many dimensions, and so what we want to do the next thirteen weeks is we want to understand the basics of our faith. What are the essentials that we believe? What are the foundations of the Christian faith? Just to reaffirm our faith and encourage one another uh, to to walk in that to walk in that faith. Uh, the manual that we're using is a book called Disciple. If you haven't received your copy, you can buy one on the way out. They're two dollars. Sixty-six, seventy, sixty-seven pages, very helpful, that will lead you through all the topics for these next 13 weeks. And by the way, the word disciple, literally translated, means learner. And so that's who we are. We are followers of Jesus. We're in the school of Jesus, trying to understand his will and his ways, and these next 13 weeks we're very excited about laying a foundation for the essentials we believe. So today, we want to launch this by really starting with the cornerstone of our faith, John's Gospel, chapter three. I want to read for us verses sixteen to twenty-one. John three sixteen to twenty-one. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Of course, we'll project the words. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. Thanks for doing that as you're able. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is our verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And may God inspire and instruct us through his word today. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Now the cross has always been considered the symbol of the Christian faith. We see it everywhere. It's adorned uh, in jewelry. It's, it's uh, depicted and symbolized on buildings and here and there. Most churches display crosses. Uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's a phenomenal thing. Many of the great cathedrals of history have been built in the shape of a cross. On and on it goes. One, one third, think of this, one third of all the gospels... Is about the death of Jesus. About his death. It's curious, isn't it? Holy communion, of course, is about the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Uh, churches sometimes are constructed, etc. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's kind of a definitive statement from a ministry. When I was with you, I only really had one message Jesus and Him crucified. Most of the leaders who have Impacted the world, changed history, impacted the nations of the world. Most of them are remembered because of the impact of their lives. Jesus, uh, more than any other person you can argue, changed the face of world history, is not so much remembered for his life as he is remembered for his death. Interesting, isn't it? Why is there such a concentration on the death of Jesus? What is the difference between the death? Uh, that Jesus died in the death of, say, some other famous person like Socrates or or, uh, one of the martyrs or a war hero, someone like that? What did it achieve? What does it mean when the New Testament says that he died for our sins? It's a great question. Well, why did he die? Well, the answer in a nutshell is because God loves you. In summary... The reason Jesus came to the earth and died was because he loves you. God loves you. It's a very powerful thought. St. Augustine observed the whole Bible does nothing but tell of God's love. Now, let's, uh, let's lay the foundation. Let's put the cornerstone in. First of all, we need to admit to recognize that there is a problem. There's a problem. In order to understand why Jesus died, we have to go back and look at the greater Greatest problem that confronts every person, confronts you, confronts me, confronts everyone. Many people reason, my life is full, I try to be nice to others, do the best I can, lead a good life, and that's their attitude and posture in the world. But on the other hand, if we are being completely honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we do things that we know are wrong. In fact, the words, I was wrong, come hard for most of us to even say. He was wrong, that's easy. (laughs) She was wrong, I got that. They were wrong. That flows pretty naturally. (laughs) I was (laughs) wrong is harder to say. (laughs) In fact, let's practice. You ready? Ready together. I was wrong. Again, I was wrong. I was wrong. One more time. I, I received that confession, and you're all forgiven. I found this list of statements on insurance forms where car drivers attempted to summarize the details of an accident in the fewest words possible. Now, this comes under the heading of, I'm not taking blame or responsibility for any of this. And so these are folks who wrecked their car, and they're trying to explain it to the insurance company in brief sentences. For example, a pedestrian hit me and went under my car. (laughs) Another guy said, a guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. (laughs) That could happen. Please don't raise your hands. In my attempt to kill a fly, I drove into a telephone pole. (laughs) I'd been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. Well, I... Sounds like he could be pretty tired. I saw a slow moving, sad faced old gentleman as he bounced off the roof of my car. (laughs) It's kind of a visual, you can kind of see that one. I was thrown from my car as it left the road. I was later found in a ditch by some stray cows. It's obviously friendly, friendly bovine, helpful. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. How many of you, that happened to you too? I mean, that can happen. Here's the last one. I was on my way to the doctor with rear-end trouble when my universal joint gave way, causing me to have an accident. That one is open to interpretation. Not sure what it means. Look on the screen at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, relative to God's standards, we're all falling a long way short. If we compare ourselves to, say, an armed robber or a child molester or even our neighbor, we might look good compared to them. But when we compare ourselves to Jesus Christ, we see how far short we fall. I occasionally muse about my my uh, college basketball career. My first college basketball game as a freshman at Valparaiso University was uh, against Notre Dame in South Bend, a full house, about 10,000 people in the arena there. And I just have to say that from the time I was, you know, in late grade school, middle school, high school, all the years that I played competitive sports, especially in basketball, I was always competitive in every game I ever played in. And, you know, and I, you know, got my name in the paper occasionally and, you know, all conference and, and all area and all-star teams and all that stuff. And so by the time I get to Valparaiso as a freshman, I figure I can compete with just about anybody. My first game at Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish were ranked third in the country preseason that year. And they featured... You have to be really old to remember these names. I say these names just out of sheer respect uh, for my opponents. But they featured a center named John Shoemate. Their guards were Gary Brokaw and Dwight Clay. And all three All-Americans. And their freshman forward that year was an unknown name at the time, but quickly became known across the country. And his name was Adrian Dantley. Now, before this experience... I thought for many years that I was actually playing the game of basketball. <laughs> I was deluded. I was deceived about that. Because after that experience, I realized I was playing a completely different game <laughs> than many others are playing. My point is simply that relative to God's glory, we fall short. We fall way short. Somerset Maugham a man you've not heard of, but he made a very poignant quote, and he said, if I wrote down every thought I have ever thought and every deed I have ever done, men would call me a monster of depravity. If I wrote down every thought I've ever thought, every deed I've ever done, men would call me a monster. And me too. Me too. Our rebellion against God, our sin, if you will, the things we have done wrong, and living as if God doesn't exist, leaves us alienated from God, suffering the consequences of that fractured relationship. For example, we know that sin, this is what we're talking about the problem now, sin has effect, it has consequence. For example, there is pollution that comes to our life. With sin. Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Before you dismiss that list, you might want to stop and check them off. If it applies to you, as it would to me. All these evils, Jesus said, come from inside and make a man unclean. In other words, these things pollute or spoil or stain our lives. These sins. You may say, well, I don't do most of those things. But here's the problem. Doing just one of them is enough to mess up our lives, to spoil our record with God. James chapter 2, verse 10 says it this way, that if we break any part of the law we are guilty of breaking all of the law. Just break it at one point and it's broken. It's like, it's like uh, saying, I have a reasonably clean driving record. Well, it's either clean or it isn't. Well, it's reasonably clean. <laughs> well, then it's not clean. <laughs> and the same is true with sin. There's the pollution of sin. One offense makes our lives unclean. There's also the power of sin. Maybe you've not thought about this. John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Everyone who commits sin becomes the slave of sin. Now, we all understand addiction. We know drug addiction. But what about being addicted to a bad temper or envy or arrogance or pride or selfishness or slander? We can become addicted to patterns of thought or behavior, which on our own we realize we cannot break. When we sin, it gets a hold of us. It grips us, and patterns develop, and it happens to all of us. Sin has this kind of power. Then there's also a penalty for sin. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin, the penalty, if you will, of sin is death. There's something within the human nature that cries out for justice. I mean, we all have this sense of justice. When we see uh, film footage of places in the country or other places around the world where human beings are mistreating other human beings, something rises up inside us, that's not right, that is so wrong, that is so bad, that is evil. Something should be done about this. Or when we see animals mistreated or the planet Mistreated. You know, we get all exorcised about that. You know, we get, that, that annoys us, that bothers us. But let me remind you of something. It's not just other people's sins that deserve punishment. It's our own sins as well. And so there's a penalty for our sin. Finally, we can say there's a partition created by our sin. We all know what a partition is. It, it separates, it divides, it keeps uh, things apart, people apart. And so when Paul says the wages of sin is death, he's not merely talking about a physical death, but he's also talking about a spiritual death. And ultimately, if you stay in a death condition in your sin, the wages of sin is death, you stay in that death condition, not only is it physical death and spiritual death, it can become eternal death, eternal separation from God. Look at Isaiah 59. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. In other words, God is perfectly willing and able to forgive us and to save us. He can do that. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So just like any relationship, this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Anytime we offend someone or we are offended by others, it separates us in our relationship from that person. And the same thing happens in our relationship with God, that our repeated activities of sin continue to separate us from our relationship with God. The things we do wrong creates this barrier, just like anything else. And so there's a problem, this sin problem. And you'll learn in the disciple manual that this began in the Garden of Eden and that Adam and Eve, the first people in the world, they failed at this and original sin came into the world. And now sin has been inherited by all of us, this nature, this tendency, this bent towards sinning. And not only do we have inherited sin, but we all also have the guilt of sin because of the practice of sin in our own lives. So there's a problem. Sin pollutes, it has power, there's a penalty to it, and it separates us from God. But here's the good news. Here's where the message turns today in this foundation. There's a solution. God has made a way for us. The good news of Christianity is that God loves us, and he did not leave us in the mess that we made of our own lives. He came to earth in the person of his son to die instead of us. This has been called the self-substitution of God. Now, this is just a fancy theological term of saying that God took our place. The substitutional atonement is this theological term that reminds us that God subbed in for us what we deserved Jesus took on our behalf if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 it says he Jesus himself bore our sins on his body our sins on his body the penalty due to us Jesus took for us as a substitute by his wounds You have been healed. Your sin on his body, your wounds healed because of him. This is really, really an amazing story. This is glorious good news that God has substituted himself to take what we deserved onto his own body. It's an amazing thing. Now, how did that play out? Well, we know it was the agony of the cross. Isaiah 53, verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, think of this, has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So we know that on the cross, Jesus not only suffered the physical horror and torture of that kind of death, but that God, literally, this is hard for us to get our minds around, that this is the truth, this is what we believe. That God actually took all of the iniquities of all of us, all of the sins you've ever committed, all of us have committed, and he laid them upon the body of Jesus. So he not only suffered physically, but he carried the weight of the sins of the world at the cross. Uh, That's mind-boggling. That's overwhelming. Hard to comprehend. But this is what we believe, and this is what the Bible promises And so then you have to choose. The solution is there, but you have to choose God's love for your life. You see a verse of scripture there. It's in 1 John. It's a beautiful verse. And it says, we have come to know and believe the love he has for us. Know it and believe it. Back to our original text today from John 3:16. John 3:16 says, "For God, so loved." For God so loved." Most people in the world believe there's a God, or God's out there somewhere, that there's a higher power, higher powers here and there. Most people believe in God. But you have to choose listen, I'm, I'm talking about choosing the love of God for your own life, and when you choose the love of God, you have to pick the right God because there's a lot of phony, false, counterfeit, unqualified gods out there available in today's world. Let me mention a couple of them. First, there's a, there's a gruff and cranky God available. He's not in a good kind of mood kind of God. He's, he's just angry all the time. Now listen to your pastor, your boss may be this way, moody and cranky, your own earthly father may have been this way, angry and cranky, but God is not that way. He's not grumpy, he's not cranky, he's a good God all the time. So don't pick pick a God who's just ready to swat you on the head every time you step out of line. Don't expect that from the God we serve, that's not the Christian God. There's another kind of God that's available in today's culture, and that is the gamer God. He's always playing games, games like hide-and-seek. Here I am. Whoop, now I'm gone. Who? I'm over here. Whoops! now you can't see me. That's not the God we serve. Always trying to trick, you know, you're getting warm. No, now you're cold. No, you're getting better. No, no, that's worse. No, no. He's, this kind of God is capricious. He's unpredictable. He can never figure out what he wants. Now, let me just just make it clear. Our God is not like that. He has laid out all of his expectations. The God we serve is consistent. You can rely on him. He cannot lie. He will always do what he says. It's not a trick, and it's not a game. God is perfectly straightforward about these things, so he's not a gamer God. Now, there's a third kind of God available in the world, and that's a guessing God. This is the kind of God that people who are performance-based, religions of the world that expect certain performances from their followers, and this is a God that you have to guess about. I think he's happy with me today, but I can't be for sure. I think I piled up enough credit points this week. Maybe I'm in good standing with God, but who knows? This is a a performance-oriented religion. Christians many times fall into this pattern as well you know, the scales of God's justice are before us. And if we, we put up more tokens on the good side than on the bad side, hopefully by the end of our lives and people who are performance-based and their religious affiliation come to the end of their lives and they're just hoping, you know, I'm, I'm about to die. I sure, hope, I sure hope my scales tip in the right direction because otherwise I'm in trouble and I just have to guess because God is unpredictable this way. Who knows his method of keeping score? Let me just say very quickly and very emphatically, this is not the God of the Bible. This is not a guessing God. Let me tell you the most unique qualification of the Christian faith. This is what primarily separates Christianity from all the other religions in the world. And you can name whatever religion you wish. The thing that separates Christianity Christianity from every other idea, every religious religious philosophy is the subject of grace, the unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God. Let me just remind you of something. There are no good people going to heaven. Being a good person does not qualify you for going to heaven, whatever a good person you think might be. We are not saved by goodness. We are not saved by our performance. We're not saved by our own merit. We're not saved by how determined we were to be good. We are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should try to boast about this. I've said this a hundred times, and believe me when I say it, when you get to heaven, you are going to be absolutely shocked by the people that you expected to see there who aren't going to be there, and you're going to be absolutely shocked by some people you see there that you had no idea could ever possibly make it. And the reason for that is because of grace. If you're going to heaven, you will be there someday by grace, not because you've been a good boy or a good girl, because good people don't get to heaven any more than Good basketball players beat Notre Dame in 1977 on the campus of South Bend. Because <laughs> good won't do it. Good won't get you there. It's the worst beating I've ever taken in my life. Can you even imagine? Not I, not used to losing anything. We, I've never said this out loud. I've been too embarrassed. We lost by 50 points. Ah. Oh. I can feel that right now. It's just so, so embarrassing. I'm never saying that again. It's too painful. <laughs> so we don't serve a guessing God. And here's the fourth God that you want to avoid. This is a North American God. This is the genie in a bottle God. This is, this is the three wishes God. This is when we call on him only when we're in trouble. You know, a business is failing. Wife's threatening to leave. Kids are wayward. Oh, God. Please, please come and help me. Please come and save me. And then when God comes through and things kind of level out a bit, then we, then we say, thanks a lot, God. Uh, I really don't need you anymore because, as you know, I can't really serve you all the time like I've been serving recently when I needed your help because, you know, you kind of cramped my style. And so I'll let you know if I need you. That's the genie God. You don't want to serve that God either. The Bible says that God... Is a redeeming God that consequences of the poor choices we have made beginning in the Garden of Eden requires that God do something drastic in order to right our relationship with Him, and that is precisely what God has done through the person of His Son Jesus Christ. He's done it, He has done it for us. The Bible says that God is love, not that God does loving things, but that He is love, His very nature. Is love. Now compare that to us. Sometimes you do loving things, but that doesn't mean that you are love. God, on the other hand, is love. His existence is permeated with, his decisions are all informed by the fact that he is love. Now, this is where, this is where folks start pushing back. And, you know, a preacher like me gets up and says, God is love. You're supposed to feel all warm and, and fuzzy about that. Pushback comes, it comes something like this. God is love, is he? You want to have that discussion? You want to try to argue that point? And then out comes a personal story. And the personal story goes something like this. If God really loves, then how could he possibly, and you fill in the story. If God, if the God you serve, you say he is love, all loving, then please explain to me why, and then fill in the blank. Now, the problem is, the problem is that you, no matter your story, no matter how hyperbolic or outrageous or true your story may be, you cannot reconcile your story with God's love. And the reason for that is that you have already self defined God's love. You've decided in your mind, in your worldview, and your perception of things, what love looks like, and when you come up with your story, if God is love, then why is this happening? You've, you've now brought into question that God is love, as the Bible claims, based on your definition. So you've imposed your definition of love onto Almighty God, and you can't do it. Therefore, you have to ask God to conform to your concept. Here's my suggestion to you. Think differently about your definition. Think differently about it. Here's what a God of love means. Let me just give you some other ideas about this. I'm about to help someone if you'll hear me. God's love, for example, is protecting, always protecting, but it's not preventing. Now, you're not going to hear this everywhere. It's protecting, but not preventing. Now, why? Because God has higher purposes, higher purposes, higher ideas, higher plans than merely keeping you from experiencing pain or to experience pleasure. God's love is higher than that. Just because you're suffering or you're in pain and it doesn't set well with you doesn't change the love of God at all. Not at all. I want you to think about that. God allows pain for his purposes. He loves us so much that he's willing to allow us to suffer from season to season, time to time, in order to teach us and expose us to his love. What could his what possible purpose could he have for that? Most of us would have never found God without pain, for example. I wouldn't have found God without pain. I've shared with you my personal testimony in recent weeks, and I can tell you that for, for several several hours on a particular day in my life when I was 16 years old, when I became aware of my sinfulness and the way that that had s- separated me from God and my awareness for the first time in my life that I knew if I were to die in that condition that I would be eternally separated from God. And I can tell you it was psychically and emotionally painful in the extreme this is called this is called the conviction of sin and it's not fun it's it's not a party it's harsh and it's and it's abrupt and it's sobering and it's scary and i've concluded that god loved me so much that he was willing to put me through that kind of suffering and pain so that i would come to him What a magnificent love of God that would allow me to have that experience so I could meet him. Wonderful. That's the love of God on display. It doesn't protect, it prevents. His pain also is allowed in our lives to refine us so that we can become more like him. I shudder to think, for example, what I would be like as a human being without God's presence in my life what if he hadn't have allowed me that suffering and pain so that i would come to him what my life would be like without him what kind of man would i be what kind of husband would i be what kind of parent would i be what kind of friend would i be i i shudder you know this is the phrase i shudder to think i don't i don't like thinking about it i can't think about it very long i know what i'm like i know what my tendencies are i can't imagine my life if you withdraw the, the pervenient grace of God in my life. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to go off the rails and quickly, and it's going to be destructive. And I, I shudder to think. And so thank God for his refining pain in my life, the way he loved me so much that it shapes me into his image. It forms my character. God allows pain not only to refine us, but to restore us. Some of you, if I ask for this testimony today, some of you drifted away from God. You knew God, then you drifted away from God, and your life became very painful. The consequences of your bad choices and decisions started to pile up and you found yourself in a horrible, painful place and it finally caused you to wake up. You're like the prodigal son who got away, spent all all the money he had left, and he ends up in a pig pen and he's going, even the servants in my father's house is better than this mess I'm in. So he goes back home and that's what you did. You came back home. You came back home because you knew there was a loving father who would embrace you and throw his arms around you. And, and if I ask for your story today and your testimony, listen, people would line up and say, I made a mess of my, I knew God, but then I made a mess, I walked away and I made a mess of my life. And thank God I came to a point where I hit, finally hit bottom and I, and I came running back. And the father greeted me and celebrated my return home and thank God for a God who loves like that thank God for his love. This is an amazing, amazing God we serve. His, his love supersedes all of our notions of love. And he's willing to allow all of these circumstances in our lives in order to bring him, bring him closer to us. It's amazing. It's a wonderful, wonderful God. So here's the best single word for love. It's perfecting love. That's the best word for God's love. You're under construction, my friend. There are going to be hard times. There are going to be difficult times. There are going to be refining times. Remember, nothing comes into your life that God is not aware of. Nothing comes into your life that he doesn't choose to allow. Nothing comes into your life that he is not ultimately designing for your good. All things working together for good. Nothing comes into your life that God is not carefully measuring so that it produces the best Possible result. These momentary light afflictions are producing in us an eternal weight of glory. For the joy set before him, Jesus himself endured the cross, suffered the shame. Why? So that we could all be part of the family. This is the love of God on display. He loves you. The Bible says his eyes are upon you, you are never far from his thoughts. He counts the number of hairs on your head. You know, that's a running count. But he's counting. He's paying attention to you. He saves your tears in a bottle, the Bible teaches. There have been moments in all of our lives when we're alone somewhere in a room in tears, and we wonder, God, is God even real? Does God even care? Does God even see me? Yeah, he not only sees you, he's collecting every tear you've ever shed, and he's storing them as a remembrance to how much he loves you. So we must allow his love to be what it really is, a perfecting love. This is good preaching. It's good preaching. I don't know what you put in the offering today, but I, it's... I... Get your money's worth. So I have to choose God's love. I have to choose it. This is part of the answer. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18, I pray that you might have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Receiving this love, believing it. This is the key that unlocks the promise of John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Max Lucato wrote, John 3.16 is the hope diamond of the Bible. It's the centerpiece of the Bible. It's the cornerstone, the foundation of our faith. Everything flows from this central truth, and none of it will make sense to you until this makes sense to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So there's a solution. There's a problem it's our wayward, waywardness, our rebellion, our sinfulness, and there's also a solution. God's self-substitution, taking our place by way of the cross through his infinite and perfecting love, which I must personally choose to receive and believe for myself. You got you to rest all your weight on it, not just mental assent. You can, you can know these things, but you also have to believe these things. Amen. 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 And finally, the result. This is the happy news of all. The pollution of sin, which I mentioned earlier, that's been, re- that's been removed. The pollution of sin is removed. The power of sin, that grippy, sticky part of sin, that's been broken. Glory to God. It's broken. The penalty of sin, the wages of death, that's been paid. Jesus already substituted our death. With his own. Death, hell, and the grave, you understand, has been defeated. The price has been paid. We've been atoned for. Price has been paid. It's really good news. And that partition, that dividing wall between us and God, totally destroyed, pulled down, doesn't exist anymore. We now have free access to God Himself, freely able to come into the Father's presence, to enter into the family of God. By simple faith, trust in Jesus Christ and the work he's done for us. Well, this is our faith. This is the cornerstone of our faith. God loves you. And I'll say it again, life will never make sense to you unless you get your arms around this reality. God loves you with an everlasting love. Words cannot express the kind of love that God has for you. So let me just give you this invitation. Whatever place you find yourself today, maybe it's a good place, maybe it's a peaceful place, or maybe it's a horrible place, a difficult place. No matter where you're sitting today and you've not received this perfect love of God made available to you, you should get from where you are and come on home. You should get up from where you are and come to Jesus. You should, you should move. From the place where you're stuck and move toward the place God's calling you. Come home. Choose to believe. God is waiting for you, He's looking for you, He's longing for you to come home. And life will only make sense when you are ultimately and finally in His embrace. Do you believe it? Did you get it? Let's pray. Could I just make this invitation to you now, if you're a person in the room on campus here or within the sound of my voice online this morning, that if you're ready to say yes to this amazing love that God has offered you in Jesus Christ and you want to give your life fully over to him, could I just invite you quietly within yourself, even in the echo of your own heart, wherever you are today? that I'll pray this prayer and you believe it, you hear the words and say, yes, that's my prayer. Just quietly within yourself today. And if you're sincere about it, I promise God will hear you. So here are the words, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you love me so much that you laid down your life for me. I'm sorry for the things in my life that have been displeasing to you hurtful to myself and others. I now turn away from everything I know is wrong. Thank you for your gift of forgiveness and new life. I choose you. I choose the love of God. No one can make this choice for me. I now receive your gift of love, forgiveness, and everlasting life. I put my trust in you. I believe in you, and I ask you to come and fill me with your Holy Spirit, to be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I'm thankful for everyone who's prayed this prayer. May you come now and fill them with your Holy Spirit, giving joy and love and peace. And we pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?